This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. See, you know when I walk out here, you are looking at what we have come to know as championship material. All right, welcome everybody. Episode 277, Talk of Buffalo podcast, presented today by our friends over at 26 Shirts. Big thank you to everybody out there, as always, for continuing to listen and download, support the podcast. It really, truly means a lot to me. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do that right now. Rate and review, all that fun stuff. Only takes a second or two to do, and it really Helps me continue to grow this podcast tremendously. And speaking of this podcast, I got a chat today with former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman Jerry Ostrowski. That'll be on today's episode. I'll tell you what, this is one of my favorite interviews I've done on this podcast. And I know I say that a lot, but I really mean that. Jerry was, uh, as a player, a very versatile alignment for the Bills in the mid-90s to early 2000s. Started literally all over the offensive line. I mean, he played center, he played guard, he played tackle. And his road to getting there wasn't always smooth and easy. Jerry was drafted in the 10th round, originally by Kansas City in 1992. And I'll tell you what, people are sitting there saying 10th round. Back in those days, there were a lot of rounds in the NFL draft. So yeah, 10th round pick. He got cut, uh, went back home eventually. And then he signed with Atlanta a move that he tells me was a big mistake. He gets cut from Atlanta too. And then he goes back home to Tulsa, Oklahoma again. Eventually ends up in Buffalo. Spends part of two seasons on the practice squad. Finally got his opportunity to play in 1994 in a game at Miami. And the rest is history. I mean, he'd go on to start 102 games for the team. Had a very good career with the Bills. So we talk about that whole process. His disappointment with not getting drafted higher. Um, And again, back in those days, 10th round, there was a 10th round. There's only seven, of course, in today's NFL. But anyway, he talks about the hurt of getting cut by Kansas City. Um, Why it was a mistake to listen to his agent and sign with Atlanta. Uh, He has a great, really funny Bill Parcells story on how he almost went to New England. Some cheesesteaks had to do with that deal. So he tells you about that. Uh, he tells me exactly how Buffalo first came into the picture, his original thoughts about Buffalo, joining a team that had been to three straight Super Bowls at that time. I get his thoughts on Jim Kelly, taking him under his wing, even when he was just on the practice squad. Uh, thoughts on Ken Hall. Just a ton of great Bill stuff loaded all over this interview today, uh, including his thoughts on the Doug Flutie, Rob Johnson debate, why that Tennessee game still bothers him more than 20 years later, uh, the injury that ended his career, so much more. And we also talk about Jerry growing up in Pennsylvania, going to a high school 
where despite becoming an NFL fixture for close to a decade, more times than not, when these guys who end up in the NFL becoming stars, you go back to their high school days. They're like legends there. But I'll tell you what, Jerry's not even close to being his high school's most famous alumni. That distinction belongs to one half of a rock and roll hall of fame, iconic duo. Uh, we talk about why he went to Tulsa for college, why he still lives here today, meeting the legendary Bob Hope when he was still in college and all American. So many great stories from Jerry. And of course the fun fact finale, we wrap up by learning a bunch of fun facts about him. Like I said, legitimately one of my favorite interviews I always love interviewing former Buffalo Bills players for this podcast. One of the reasons for me selfishly is as a Bills fan, kind of takes me back down memory lane a little bit. And I also think it's a chance for Bills fans, especially younger ones, to get a chance to know a lot more about these players. It was fun, really good stuff. And uh, I truly think you're going to be entertained and get something out of this. So I don't want to waste any more time. Here it is in my chat with former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman, Jerry Ostrowski. All right, my guest today is a former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman, started 106 games for the Bills during his run with the team between 1994 and 2001. A versatile guy who could play all over the old line. He was a center, a guard, a tackle, one of the more likable and popular players during his time with Buffalo. I'm talking about Jerry Ostrowski. What's going on, Jerry? As you're joining on the pod. Hey, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, th- this is awesome. I- I'll have to say real quick, you know, Twitter has 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 done a great job of connecting people, and it's awful fun to be able to connect with you know people like yourself from Buffalo and and tie back into the community and tie back in with the team. You know, because like we talked about a little while ago, you have so many young people now, and just you know. There was an era of football in Buffalo that was pretty special, and I was luckily to, to be a part of it at the end of it. And um, I'm 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 real excited. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on. And you mentioned Twitter. I straight up hunted you down on Twitter. <laughs> I have a list of like ten to twelve guys that I remember very well from the '90s. You know, that was the time where I'm I'm around around the age, same age, but you know, that was my peak of my fandom when I was a lot younger than I remember a lot of you guys. And I'm like, man, it'd be great to get some of you guys on the podcast. I just had Thomas Smith on last week and you hit on a perfect. This is an opportunity for any Bills fan, but especially maybe the younger ones who weren't either weren't even born or, you know, too young to remember during the days where guys like you played and and were a big part of the team. But we'll get there. Before that, like I said, let's give fans a chance to learn a little bit more about you. You were born in, look at a Collegeville, like PA, that's not far from Philly. Like, what did you do growing up? Obviously, football has been a big part of your life for a long time, but what else did you enjoy doing as a young little kid, like whether it's sports um, yeah, or otherwise? I was, actually, I was actually born in Narstown, Pennsylvania, which is a little uh, which is a little further away from Collegeville. We moved to Collegeville when I went to, when actually I went to University of Tulsa. My parents moved closer to my to my grandparents, but uh, yeah, I was born in Narstown, which is actually the home of Tommy Lasorda and uh, Gino Oriyama. So, um, you know, that's where I was born. Hmm. moved up uh, moved up to Pottstown as a kid, and we kind of ended up in Collegeville. But no, I was a, I was a kid that played every season. When I was young, uh, I didn't play football until seventh grade, and the big part of that was I, I always weighed too much. We had 
we had Pop Warner football back then. They went by weight <laughs> limits. And I think the kids were like three or four years older than me at the weight limit. I was, I was going to be able, able to play because of how heavy I was. So my mother and father were real worried about me staying in the house because they didn't want me to, to get too, you know, to get too big and get overweight. They wanted me to stay active. So when I was young, I played baseball, I played soccer and I played basketball. And then in seventh grade, I flipped to, uh, to wrestling and football along with baseball. So until I graduated high school, um, I played three sports. My last year, I didn't wrestle because I was going to have to cut about 30 pounds to get to the 275 limit. And I didn't, I, yeah. I, I was on a, you know, I had a football scholarship to Tulsa. So, um, cutting weight wasn't, uh, wasn't something I felt like doing. So my last year I didn't wrestle. I just went and lifted and actually probably gained another 15 pounds. But, um, yeah, I was an active kid, man. I was always doing something. If I wasn't playing sports, I was, I was hunting and fishing with my father. Who were a few of your like favorite sports teams and, and athletes when you were a young kid? Well, it's funny you bring that up because as passionate as the city of Buffalo is, so is the city of Philadelphia. And, you know, Philly is one of those things you're born into. Sure. When, you, when, you, when you're born in Philly, it's just like Buffalo. You're, you're an Eagles fan. You're a Phillies fan. You're a Flyers fan, Sixers. And those were my teams uh, and still are to this day. Now, obviously – the Bills will always have a special place in my heart, and they always come first. But I, I was excited when the Eagles won a Super Bowl. Um, I do get excited watching the Flyers still. Um, you know, I used to have some knockdown dragouts with Matthew Barnaby and Mike Pekka back in the day. Um, you know, <laughs> when the Flyers would come to town and and everything else. So, um, but those are my teams. I mean, I, I love the Philadelphia sports teams. I'm a big fan of Villanova basketball. Um, obviously, when I was in, uh, I believe. 10th grade is when they won their first national championship under Raleigh Massimino. Still a fan of the big five teams there in Philly and, and also Penn State. So, you know, I'm a Pennsylvania guy through and through. I've, I've been in Oklahoma now more than I was in Pennsylvania because I came down here when I was 18 and still live here. But, but you know, those Philly teams are my teams besides the Bills. Yeah, for sure. Now, you went to Owen J. Roberts High School, and I got to point this out when I was doing my research on you. <laughs> so you're a you're at this well, you weren't at the time, but you went on to become a future NFL player, a very productive NFL football player, had a great career, a nice name. So normally at more high schools than not, you'd be the big man on campus forever there. But from what I'm reading, like you're not even the most famous nope. dude alumni <laughs> of your nope. school. That distinction, for everyone listening, that distinction belongs to Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Daryl Hall. Of course, <laughs> we got from Hall and Oates, man. Was he like a legend when, when you went to school? Because, I mean, so you went in the, what would that be, like the, the later 80s, right? Yeah, I was, uh, I graduated in 1988. Obviously, they were out of there in the 70s. Uh, sure. he met, I think he met John uh, Oates down in Philly at some point is the story that that um, is always told. But the, the cool part about it is when we were kids, there was a field off of 744, which was a, a road that, that there in, in in my area, there was a field and there was an old uh, abandoned luncheonette like diner that was out in that field that somebody removed from a lot and put it there. And that's actually an album cover and the name of one of their albums. Uh, Hall and Oates is called the abandoned luncheonette. And, and that, you know, that thing was still there when I was a, when I was a kid. Huh. So, I mean, but like I said, he was long gone by the time you got there, but uh, you know, it's nice to have a, 
a legend like that. It's just uh, it's pretty wild. Holland Oates yeah, is one of my favorite all time. Who groups. else went to school there too? Right. Who? Uh, Don Strock. Oh, really? Yeah. Former Don NFL Strzok. quarterback, right? Yeah the the original ultimate backup quarterback. Wow, it's a pretty popular school. Now, you yeah. talked about other sports, too. I read that. Now, you played baseball, and you hit 428. See, I do my homework, Jerry, by the way. Yes, you, you do. You hit 428 one year. You were a catcher or first baseman at DH. Those, that's some good numbers for high school baseball. Yeah, I had a – supposedly the story is a, a Yankee scout was there one time watching a kid from another team, and they asked somebody who I was. And the scouts' comment, and I'm paraphrasing, was if he lost like 200 pounds, he'd be a hell of a prospect. So, <laughs> you know, but you know, there's another guy that I grew up with, and you know, I'm name dropping since you brought it up. Uh, I played high school baseball against Mike Piazza. So Piazza's from Phoenixville. Um, obviously, his father was was born in Arstown, where I was. But yeah, we played against Piazza back in high school as well. Ah, oh, that's really cool. So now, when it comes to football. Obviously, you know, you're a bigger kid, you have size, but at what point did you start to put it all together? Like I've, you know, I've covered high school football for many years. My son just got done playing high school football. I've seen a lot of kids and just because you're big doesn't mean necessarily you're talented or that you could play the game well. Like at what point did you start to realize that, you know what, I could really play the sport well. I could go out there and I could dominate. I could do a good job. What's funny is, is back then, um, we didn't have the training back then that they do now. So college football is a lot different. There was very, very few kids that you could get to play right away. Um, if you remember, that's when the red shirt really was the red shirt. When anybody uh, signed you, it was pretty much they would tell your parents, you know, hey, we're going to red shirt them a year, let them mature, let them get in the weight room. Um, get on our training table, and then we'll go from there. So I never really thought about it, you know, growing up. I mean, the only place I ever wanted to go was Penn State. I was lucky to have a kid on my team that won the uh, the Maxwell Club Award for the best high school player in the tri-state area, Delaware, uh, Delaware, Philly area, and then Jersey, South Jersey. <clears throat> and he brought a lot of attention to our school. And so recruiters would come in and they would see me and they'd be like, who's this big kid? Some liked me, some different, didn't. Um, I went up to Penn State on some stuff. They they actually had this thing back then, their top 10 or their premier 10 walk-ons that they would do. Um, they offered me one of those spots. But there was a school where I ended up playing, and obviously we'll get to that, University of Tulsa. Um, their offensive line coach who recruited Pennsylvania and recruited me played at Penn State. And um, obviously that's where I ended up. And when I got to Tulsa, that's when I kind of realized maybe what I could be because I had never been coached like I was by this, by Mark Thomas, my offensive line coach at Tulsa. And he was able, cause I was, I was still pretty raw and didn't have any bad habits cause we were just running three or four basic plays. We won a lot of football games growing up, but it was because we were tough and we were better than other teams. But uh, he really started to mold me and teach me how to play. Um, and when I got to, to Tulsa as a freshman, that's when things really started taking off. Why did you end up going to Tulsa? What other schools did you, did you most consider or were the other schools there were, that were recruiting you at that time? And what did you know about Tulsa before they started recruiting you? Because, you know, you're a kid in Pennsylvania. That's yeah, pretty much the other side of the country. You could, may as well have been right. a whole new it world might as well you, been, at it, that point. Well, 
Yeah, Patrick, might as well have been because I'd never even been on an airplane until I went on my recruiting visit. Um, so it might as well have been in Australia for all I know. Um, you know, most people in Pennsylvania to ask you, you know, you're going to Tulsa, isn't that in New Orleans? No, that's Tulane, not Tulsa. But, right. um, you know, I had an offer from Temple. Uh, what's funny is, is that I was offered a scholarship to go to Temple by a first time head coach by the name of Bruce Arians. Um, oh, wow. Bruce Arians, his first, first head coaching job, he came from an assistant he was an assistant under Bear Bryant at Alabama. Uh, he came to uh, Temple and was head coach. They offered me a scholarship. Rutgers offered me a scholarship. I didn't like where either of those schools were. Pitt was right on the verge. Pitt, I, I was like, I was a Penn State guy. I wasn't going to Pitt. The only place I really cared to go was Penn State. And when they offered me a walk-on spot, I was like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to do that with my parents. You know, I've got all these other places like Delaware and different places that wanted me to go and I was going to go for free. And then the, the Mark Thomas, my line coach who was recruiting Pennsylvania came in uh, and offered me a scholarship to go to this place called Tulsa. And we kind of sat down as a family and I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to go out here and visit. And I said, if I like it, that's where I'm going to go. And if I don't like it, I'll just go to Delaware. And uh, we went out there. I loved it, fell in love with the place and uh, have been out here since I was 18. And, and obviously, you know, the rest is history. When it comes to your parents, were I, I mean, obviously, I'm sure they were supportive, but did it take some, maybe a little bit of arm twisting initially from your end? Because, you know, as, as somebody who, who has a kid, and I, I just envision him going to a college somewhere, you, you, you ran off some schools that are a lot closer to where you grew up, as opposed to, like I said, going to, at that point, what's a whole new world for you in Oklahoma? Like, what was your parents' reaction at that time? And did it take that maybe a minute or two to really get on board with their, you know, their little baby boy going away so far. <laughs> well, that's funny you say that. I'll, I'll dig in a little bit deeper. I'm an only child. Okay. So there's that whole aspect. Um, my father was basically an orphan by the time he was six. Uh, his mother and father passed away. He kind of bounced around with family members until he got to his grandparents' house. So I don't really know my father's side of the family. So my father was incredibly independent, uh, basically learned for himself you know, raised himself. So you have that whole aspect. And then you got my mother's side of the family who are full Italian. And my mother wanted to complain. My father would not allow her because he was like, look, this kid needs to go. He needs to learn. This is how he's going to grow up. He's got to get away. My grandmother's just absolutely beat my mother's ear to death. Like, how can you let your son go across the country and you'll never see him again? And, you know, she was just absolutely mortified. But, you know, dad was, you know, my father was correct. I mean, I, I needed to get away. I needed to grow up. I needed to learn what it was like to live on my own. And um, it was the best decision, to be honest with you, that I've ever made in my life was to leave Pennsylvania, leave Philly and go to Tulsa. Yeah, uh, I mean, it sounds like it both on a professional and, and a personal level, seeing the fact that you're still there to this day. Now, why you were there. Your last three years, you started every game, and you left that school an All-American. In fact, as I was doing the research, I learned you were the first All-American at Tulsa in 19 years. Your last game, you guys beat San Diego State in the Freedom Bowl. Here's one I want to ask you, because this is one of the cooler things I came across. Uh, I read that back when, and I do kind of remember this, when the All-Americans used to be on the Bob Hope Christmas show special, yep. I, I sort of remember that with the college All-Americans. You got to meet Bob Hope, who... I mean, what was that like for you? I mean, that that man was, was, is, and always will be an icon. 
Do you remember that pretty well? I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, you know, when I was a kid growing up, my father was always the guy that liked, uh, he liked variety shows. He liked music. He liked, you know, he watched Hee Haw. He watched Lawrence Welk. He watched the Bob Hope specials. So when I was a kid, I was very well aware of the AP All-American team being on the Bob Hope show. I watched it every year as a kid. And I remember, I, and this is, this sounds kind of quirky, but it's, it's true. I told my mother one day, I said, I'm going to be on that show. And they, everybody laughed. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Because when I was young, I wasn't a real, I was more of a, you know, I'm an only child and my mother's given me all this unadulterated attention. I was a, I wasn't a big tough kid. I was kind of more of your bigger, likable, softer, big kid. Um, I kind of grew into the rest of it. And now a lot of that had to do with my, my coach in college and my high school coaches as well. But yeah, I mean, I said I was going to be on that show one day and then I, I go ahead and I, I get to be an AP All-American and uh, I get to meet Bob Hope. And the hilarity of it is we were talking uh, the year before they went to Maui. Uh, the Bob Hope show was in Maui. So the team flew to Maui and they taped it in Maui. And the year that I did it, it was Christmas in Nashville and it was uh, about 13 degrees and we filmed it on a high school field that was painted green. <laughs> so I didn't quite, I didn't quite have the tropical experience that the others had, but it was a lot of fun. You know, it's still a lot of fun. I got to meet Bob Hope. He told his joke, which was hilarious. Um, you know, and, and then about a week later, and I still have it in my living room, um, they send you an autographed picture of Bob Hope when he's got the mic up and he's interviewing you. So it's you and Bob and he they sign it and everything. So still have that in my in my living room. It's pretty cool. What a cool moment that must have been. Now looking back, you know, as a kid in high school, college and the bros, along the way you've had a lot of accomplishments. Have you been the kind of guy that like kind of likes to take some time and reflect on things as they happen? Or are you kind of one of those, let's, I'm always moving forward onto the next thing type of deal. Because I, I mean, something like that, if that were me, I, I just imagine it and that shit would stick with me forever. You know what I mean? Yeah, it sticks with you. And, and there's a lot of things that I still think about. And it's been nice because, you know, Twitter's funny. It's good for two things. It's good for people lying about who they are and they act like a bunch of loons on there. Or for us older folks that like to to vent and connect and those types of things. And I've gotten to become, uh, got to be able to, you know, chat with John Fina. And, and I actually recently had a chance to connect with Glenn Parker after a long time. But, um, you know, I still think about those things. But it's not like I, it's really hard sometimes to just be yourself because everybody wants you to be the the, the football player, the NFL player. And, you know, a lot of times you just want to be yourself, but the thing that you, that I've learned recently, and you'll know this because you obviously, you have a son that's played high school sports, high school football. Um, you know, my son, I have one that's a Drake that played and then I got this, my younger boy, uh, we play, he plays in the state championship on Friday night. Uh, they're playing for the 3A state championship. And uh, he right now is committed to go to West Point, uh, to go to Army. And, um, you know, you start reminiscing a lot because you watch him and you watch your kids and you see what they're doing and you remember times in your life that you did that or, you know, times in your career when you had a huge game like this and, you know, so all those things. So while you don't, you know, you don't walk around with a, you know, it plastered all over your chest, it's, there are things like that, especially I've learned watching my boys play that bring those memories back quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. So now you wrap up a successful career at Tulsa and, and you're headed towards the NFL. Now, every 
not every boy, but lots of boys play Little Loop. A uh, good amount play high school and a very small percentage go on to college and only a minuscule amount know what it's like to kind of go through that process. You do. So take fans listening. Like what was that off season draft process for? What was it like for you? I know, I know you were at the NFL combine that year, but just like that entire process. So you're transitioning from a really good all American career at Tulsa to getting ready and prepared to, to get your shot at the NFL. Like what was that winter that off season like for you? Well, again, I mean, we didn't have the – this was pre-Mike Mamula. This was pre-guys going to trainers to basically learn how to cheat the drills. And it was back when the combine was thought of in a very, very high, I don't know, level or, you know, people really put a lot of stock in the combine. And uh, so we – me and I think four other teammates, because we had – you know, probably six or seven guys that had NFL potential on that Tulsa team from 91. We trained together. We worked out together. We did drills together and all that stuff. And, you know, then went to the combine and did the best we could. Um, but it's a, it's, it's stressful. Um, it's, it's incredibly humbling. Uh, it's an eye opener. I mean, it's your whole life. You've been, you know, when you go to high school, you've got people behind you that want you to be successful. When you go to college, somebody's just invested four years worth of tuition in you and all this money for you to be successful. They want to see you be successful. When you go to the NFL, it's it's just you're you're competing with all these other people for 53 spots on 32 teams. And the it just becomes a cutthroat business and and it's just a whole different feel and you just gotta learn how to deal with it. Yeah. Now what were uh were there other teams that, that spent time talking to you and did you have any indication where you might go? Now, everybody knows your career was with the Buffalo Bills and we'll get to that in a minute, but you weren't drafted originally by Buffalo. Like, did you get a sense of one or two teams that might've been in the mix to take you? And I'm going to imagine because you grew up in the area and you talked about growing up a fan, I'm sure that you probably hoped that you were going to be a Philadelphia Eagle. You know, it was the Jets were a team that I thought um, w- they were coming around quite a bit, uh, working me out. Uh, I think Pittsburgh was another team. Um, I hadn't seen the Eagles that off, you know, come to school. They didn't they didn't work me out on campus, but it just was a little different than it was now. You don't have all the you didn't have all that information, and and you didn't have Twitter. You didn't have the up to the minute combine results, and you know. Um, What's my man? My, Mel Kuyper Jr. was just starting out. Um, he was a guy, yeah. who, you know, he just started. He was just starting his draft stuff. So um, it was a lot different. So I will say this, being a first-team All-American, I didn't think I was going to sit around until the 10th round, which, you know, obviously they don't even have uh, 12 rounds anymore. They've got seven. But um, it just was a pretty humbling experience. Um my college roommate was drafted by the Cowboys before before I was drafted. He was drafted in the sixth round. He was asleep. He had no idea he was even going to get picked. And you know, <laughs> the Cowboys the Cowboys came up to work our quarterback out. Our quarterback was T.J. Rubley, who got picked by the Rams. And uh, every time that T.J. threw, he had Fallon come out to catch for him because Fallon not only had really soft hands, he was also 6'8". He was an ex-basketballer that – came out and played tight end for us. So he was, you know, in the realm of, you know, in the realm of NFL or in the realm of football, he was an incredible athlete. In basketball, he was probably average, but in football, he was above average. 
So TJ always had him come out because he caught everything in sight. And uh, the Cowboys fell in love with him watching TJ work out. They end up picking him in the sixth round. So uh, you just never know. It's just a, it's a weird deal. But I ended up going to Kansas City in the 10th round. And the funniest part about that is they picked three linemen in the uh, 8th, ninth, and 10th round. They picked a kid from San Diego State named John Jennings in the 8th. They picked Jay Lewenberg, who was also an All-American center from Colorado. They picked him in the ninth, and then they picked me in the 10th. They cut me and Jay. They kept uh, John Jennings. John was on the practice squad for one year and never made it. Jay and I played a combined 18 or 19 years in the NFL. Well, I mean, yeah, that's crazy. What was like, what was your initial thoughts at at the moment from what you can remember looking back now when you're drafted by Kansas City in the 10th round? I'm sure it was disappointment. I'm sure you expected to go higher. And as your career progressed, you proved that a lot of teams made a mistake by you not getting drafted to the 10th round. But at that time, how big was that disappointment for you? It was huge. I mean, I felt like I let people down. Um, you know, I always... I coached for quite a while. I coached from 05 to 2015. So I coached for 10 years at the school that my boys went to uh, or go to. And um, I always preach to the kids that everybody in life has a trigger. There's something that there's something that in their life that triggers them to, to, to try to accomplish things or to try to, to, to climb the great heights. There's something that, 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 that motivates them that when they don't want to do something, there's that trigger that they have that makes them want to get up and go do something. And, you know, and mine was always my parents and not letting my parents down and my family down. And I, I felt that way at the time. It took a little while to get, to get out of that funk, but I went to the Kansas city and probably the best thing I learned with the chiefs, you know, was the fact that it was hard to make it <laughs> no, ma- no yeah. matter, no matter what round you were picked in. I mean, it was hard to make it and you had to learn how to work uh, probably work harder than you ever did um, to to make the league because the 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 separation between you and others was so small, and sure. that was probably a big eye opener for me. Now, so your road, and this is one of my favorite things about getting an opportunity to chat with former NFL stars, is that players take different roads to get there. Like I just talked about last week on the show, I had Thomas Smith on, and Thomas is a former first round pick yep. you're you're drafted in the 10th round your road to becoming a quality nfl starter just like thomas was wasn't paved as smooth it wasn't as easy so let's spend a couple of minutes talking about that so you get drafted by kansas city you spend the preseason there and then you get cut i think the next year you sign with atlanta then the same thing happens again then later that year you in 93 you sign with the bills practice squad uh 94 you're back with the bills you get cut put back on the practice squad and eventually you get on the active roster you get your shot and kind of the rest is history there. But how tough is it as an athlete like yourself to go through that? I mean, again, you're an all American in college and now you're going through hell. It seems to me anyway, to stick in the NFL, which is obviously, you know, your lifelong dream, or at least it was your dream for several years. Like, did you ever come close at any point in that process? Because a lot of guys get drafted later on or they're on practice squads and they don't make it. Was there a point for you where you at least came close to, calling your dreams a wrap, you know what I mean? And starting to focus on something else or were you just, you know, you're able to dig in and stay determined, obviously it paid off, but did you come close at some point to kind of throwing in the towel on that dream? Yeah, it was, uh, I can tell you exactly when it was. I went to Atlanta for some 
stupid reason. I think my agent and I decided that it would have been smart to go to Atlanta because of numbers and me and the run and shoot offense just did not work. And um, this was after having an opportunity in the off season to go to either Atlanta, uh, the New York giants, the uh, New England Patriots and the Buffalo bills. I got a great Patriots story with that whole workout and Bill Parcells. Uh, if you want to hear it here in a moment, but you know, I come back from Atlanta, I'm cut for the second time and I'm working in the, uh, in the, in the athletic marketing department at TU over at Tulsa. And the guy I was working for is a guy by the name of Steve August. And uh, if you look his name up, Steve August was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, former number one draft pick by the Seattle Seahawks, played with Steve Zorn or Jim Zorn and Steve Largent. Um, Steve was a uh, offensive tackle at the University of Tulsa. So both of us were alums and we're sitting there in the office one day and we're cold calling companies trying to get them to buy advertising in the game programs. And uh, <clears throat> we're sitting there talking and Steve just stops and he looks at me, he goes, what are you doing here? I go, what do you mean? What am I doing here? I'm doing a job. I'm trying to, cause we had talked about, you know, me finishing my degree, getting a teaching degree, going to be a teacher and a coach and all that. And he goes, what are you doing here? He goes, you're good enough to play. He goes, please don't stop playing. He goes, you, you, whatever you do, get another chance. He goes, you can play in the in the league. And I'll never forget that. And um, I saw him not too long ago, and we were, we were taking a ride down to Oklahoma City for an NFLPA retired players uh, meeting, and we talked about that in the car. And um, I got the opportunity. I was up breaking down film and uh, for the coaches upstairs, and – Mark Thomas, my line coach, came in. He said, hey, there's a guy that wants to see you in my office. And I walked in, and there, there was Dwight Adams sitting, uh, sitting in Mark's office. Dwight was the uh, director, of pro, uh, was director of college uh, scouting for the Bills at the time. He's from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And he looks at me, and he goes, I thought I told your dumb ass to go to Buffalo. And I started laughing. I said, yeah, <laughs> I probably should have. And he goes, he goes, look, he says, we're going to have a practice squad spot open up, I think, in the next week or so. And if everything goes the way I think it is, I want you to come up and uh, take a physical. And if you pass, I want you to uh, you to get on the practice squad. Mm-hmm. And I said, all right. I said, well, you know my number. I said, I'll, I appreciate it, Dwight. I didn't think nothing of it. And I went up to Utah, up to Salt Lake City to visit my, my, my now wife, my girlfriend at the time. She was working up there for a year at the University of Utah with her sorority. She was a chapter consultant. And the phone rings, and it's my roommates who were both in law school. And they start telling me, hey, the bill's called. We got it all worked out. We got your contract worked out. You know, you're going to sign. I'm like, what are you idiots talking about? Well, the bills did call. They wanted me to fly up and, uh, and take the physical. They gave me the number. I called up there. We set it all up. I, I, I flew home on Sunday night. I got on a plane with two bags on Monday. I flew to Buffalo. They picked me up Tuesday. I went and got my physicals. I did a tryout that afternoon. Uh, I signed the next morning. and was in the offensive line meeting by 8 or 9 o'clock, and I stayed there until 2002 and never came back. Wow, that's, that's really cool. So that, that's how you end up with Buffalo. Now you just uh, tease a little bit of a Bill Parcells story. I got to hear that. So what's right, the deal so- with that? So Parcells, Parcells, they call. They want me to come up and work out for the for the for the Patriots. So this is the off season when I signed with Atlanta, 
So I fly up to Boston. I stay in a hotel. The next day, the driver comes. And it was old school, man. The guy shows up in a Lincoln Town car, you know, the suit, the whole nine yards. I get in. We drive to Foxborough to the facility. And I get there, and I I get to – I meet one of the scouting guys, and they said, hey, go down to the equipment room. I'll get you some shorts and everything. You know, change, and then we'll go down to the bubble. So I went down there and changed. I go down to the bubble, and I walk in. And Parcells is in there, and I believe it's Pete Mangerian, who was the offensive line coach at the time. Scott Zolak was the quarterback, and he was in there messing around. I'm like, why is he here? So I get there, and Parcells introduces himself. He says, hey, here's a ball. Um, you're going to snap. I said, I don't play center. He said, no, you play center today. You're going to snap the ball. All right. So I go ahead, and I end up doing a whole workout playing center, snapping, and I'd never snapped. I mean, I snapped in in middle school, but I wasn't a center for years. Dude, this whole thing was Olak. And Parcel says, all right, good job. He says, uh, go up and get cleaned up. He says, and they'll bring you up to my office so you can sign this contract. And I just kind of started laughing. I said, oh, coach, I said, my agent told me not to sign anything. He says, ah, don't listen to him. We'll, you just, you'll sign this contract. So whatever. So I go up to the locker room. I clean up. I come up to his office. They take me up to his office. Parcel, they walk me into Parcel's office. Now, Parcel's is smart. He does his homework, okay? Parcel's knows where I'm from. He's got two cheesesteaks, two large orders of fries, and drinks on his desk. One for <laughs> me, one for me, one for him. And he says, all right. He says, you're going to sign this contract. And we start eating cheesesteaks. And... I left there without signing it. I still to this day can't understand why I left there without signing it, but I did. And uh, so, but I'll be eating cheesesteaks with Bill Parcells is cool enough as it is, right? So I end up, to wrap this story up, I end up um, X amount of years later, Wade Phillips is now the head coach. And the first thing they did, uh, Wade and, and, uh, Joe Pendry, the OC, moved me to center. So we're playing the Jets. Now Parcells is the head coach of the Jets. We're playing the Jets on Sunday night football. I believe it was Sunday night football. Either Sunday night or Monday night. I think it was Sunday night. And I'm just having one of those games where most pros can tell you every so often you have a game where there's nothing you can do wrong and you just absolutely play this flawless game. It's almost like you're out of body. And I'm having one of those games. I'm whipping those guards. I mean, we're rushing all over the place. We're so halftime. We're up. I'm walking to the to the up the tunnel there at Ralph Wilson, and all of a sudden, I get blasted in the back, and I turn around like I'm getting ready to hook up with somebody, and it's Parcells, and he puts his arm up. He goes, "I told you you could play center." It starts laughing, and we end up walking up the tunnel together. So. Uh, <laughs> That's my story with him, and uh, it's. I always thought it was a pretty good, pretty good tale. But yeah, so that's the story of me and cheesesteaks with Bill Parcells. <laughs> that's really cool. So now you don't sign with him. You do end up in Buffalo. You're on the practice squad. I'm sure that's not at that moment. You know what you had always dreamed of, but that it is what it is at that time. But that said, you're you're in an organization now, ultimately on their way to a four straight Super Bowl, even if it's just a practice squad, you're still on that practice field every day with future Hall of Famers like like Jim Kelly and Bruce Smith and and Thurman and Andre. You no, know, not to mention stars like Tally and Ben and Ken Hall, I know is a big part 
a big influence on your game. Just to name some, like, what are your feelings at that time? Like I asked you, like I said, when you, when you met Bob Hope, now you're on an NFL practice squad with, with the caliber of talent like this. Was it a little, I don't, I don't want to say overwhelming because you're a pro at this point, you know, you're not a, a, a wide eyed kid anymore, but was it at all a little bit intimidating to be, you know, on a roster with, with that much talent surrounding you being so young in your career? Yeah, when you first go up there and you're looking at Bruce and some of these guys, it's it's it can be very intimidating. But the thing that was interesting about Buffalo, and it's truly one of the reasons why I think they were so successful back then, they were such a tight football team, and they didn't treat anybody differently. There was no heirs to anyone. I mean, my I always tell a story. I was it was the off season, and I was just a, I mean I was just a twerp. I was still on the practice squad and. And I was working out in the off season, and it was a, I think it was a Wednesday, either Wednesday or a or a Tuesday. And I'm up there sitting on my stool after I took a shower, and Jim Kelly walks up from downstairs. He had just got done working out. He says, "Hey, oh, what are you doing this weekend?" I said uh, nothing, and he's like, "Well, because I'm going up to the Toronto Grand Prix and hanging out with uh, Team Penske and Al Hunter Jr. this weekend. You want to come up with me?" And I'm like. Wow. First of all, Jim doesn't have any idea that I'm a huge racing fan, that my father took me to the races all the time. Not only is Penske my favorite team, but Alan Tr. Jr. is my favorite driver. So I didn't act like a schoolgirl when he said it. But inside, I'm going, this is unbelievable. And that weekend, I drive up Toronto, and here we are at the Toronto Grand Prix. I'm walking around and, and with pit passes with, with Jim Kelly and his crew and Alan Tr. Jr. and Penske and Fittipaldi, and I'm like, and that's what nobody gets, like, especially Jim. Jim was amazing. There was – everybody was Jim's friend. And he's still this way. I'm, I guarantee he's still this this way to this day. You know, he he was just so gracious and so, um, you know, he would just help anybody. And uh, I'll never forget that. And that, it kind of took the – that kind of takes the intimidation factor off when you're – you know, you're a practice squad guy and you're treated, you know, you're treated just like everybody else. That's a big deal. And I think that's a big part of why they were so successful. And, and to be honest with you, that was a big mantra of, of Marv Levy. Um, I'm sure you've heard a million times if you've, if you've dug into some Marv Levy stuff that one of the things Marv always preached was the guy who cleans the locker room is just as important as a starting quarterback. And um, so that was a big deal up there. It was pretty neat. I'll tell you, growing up, so in the early 90s, I, I remember this very well. I, I was a bartender or a bar back and then a bartender at a, a bar in North Buffalo and some of the guys would come in on Monday nights and just wherever they went, it was like these players were like rock stars to fans in the town, in the, in the city, in the community, in the region. It was just, uh, yeah, it was just like these guys. I mean, it's, it's not quite like that as much today with the players yet, but give them some time. You know what I mean? But back right. in those I, days, those guys were like legitimate rock stars. They really were. But you have to think, okay, you have to think of the town you're, and this is what made I'm telling you, I would live in Buffalo if I didn't live in Tulsa. I love Buffalo. Uh, I love the weather. I don't care if it's not. It's great. I love this. I love Buffalo. I love the area. And what people don't get is that small town, that small town feel, that small city, you know, that team, you know, small town, small city team. You you go around and you you have access. People have more access to you than maybe some of these bigger towns. But it's a good thing. Like I remember in the offseason, I rented a. A, cottage, a cabin on Glenn Parker's property in Eden, and I used to go down to the down to the bar there in, in downtown Eden every every weekend on a Friday, 
to go down there and people had dogs. If it was snowmobile season, they were riding snowmobiles. And by the end of the night, you had a stack of plastic cups in front of you and everybody was having a good time and nobody was getting uneasy. And it was just, it was just a big family feel. And it's, it's the thing I love about Buffalo. It's the people, man. I mean, weather, whatever, you can deal with that, but the people are just so awesome up there. And it, and it's just a different vibe. I mean, you get to really, truly know people a little different than I think if you're playing for the Cowboys or Chicago or, you know, things like that. Yeah, for sure. I, the, one of the guys I mentioned was Ken Hull. Obviously one of the best Bills offensive linemen in history. And every person I've talked to says the same thing. Just a, a great leader. You were around him for four years with the Bills. He played on an offensive line, which is you're an old lie guy. So what were your thoughts on a guy like Ken Hall? I would say he's probably single-handedly the one guy that taught me how to be a pro. Um, Ken had a little bit of the same history. I mean, Ken out of college was not – he went to the USFL and then ended up eventually in Buffalo. Uh, incredibly smart player, always prepared, and understood what it was – to be a professional player because guys will tell you like myself, for instance, I couldn't even keep track of the number of players that came through. that were probably more athletic than me, maybe had more ability than me, but they didn't understand what it was, what it was like to be a professional athlete or be a pro. And, and Kent, Kent taught me that. And I'll, you know, I'll never forget that guys like Kent. And then I got to meet Will Wolford through Kent. Will's an amazing dude. Um, you know, John Davis is a guy that was a, was a great old school pro. He was a plan B guy that came from Houston, ended up being in Buffalo and just tough as nails. Glenn Parker was a pro. John Fina was a pro. You know, and you look at those guys, those, 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 those types of guys, they just, you just sit around them and you try to take in as much as you can. And, you know, Kent was that way. I think all those guys I mentioned all learned from Kent. When you become a starter, so, you're on the team in 94. Now you're on the active roster and eventually you get an opportunity to become a starter. You took the ball and you ran with it and didn't look back, but to become a starter, there needs to be something that happens, you know, to have that opportunity, whether it was someone else getting injured or someone else not playing well, like how did the opportunity for you to, to become a starter, which again, you took that ball and ran with it, but how did that opportunity come for you to become one? I was always a person that could – I was never going to test well as far as agility and those types of things. I was always super strong. A lot of my strength was was just naturally through playing. Um, I was just a player that needed an opportunity, and I needed a group of people that understood that and, and helped me kind of refine some of the things that I needed help with. Buffalo was that team, and the reason why we were that team was because of, of the, the, the administration – John Butler, the GM, um, before him, Bill Polian, but their belief in Rusty Jones, our strength coach, that Rusty could take a guy that was big, maybe needed to change his body a little bit, learn how to, to take care of himself better, and get him ready to play. They did it with House Ballard. Um, they did it with a lot of others. I was one of those guys. That, you know, I was with Rusty probably five days a week, whether I was running on a treadmill, working out, lifting. So as I learned how to play the game on the field, I was working with Rusty behind the scenes to better myself body-wise and just get in better shape and better overall health. And then that Sunday night in, in, uh, in Miami, uh, we go down there and it, our left guard 
um, was having a rough game. I had just been activated that week. I was on the sidelines figuring, hey, I'm going to wear this ball cap and just collect a check and enjoy being in South Florida. And halfway through the second quarter, uh, that gentleman gave up a sack and Tom Brezhnev turned and looked at me and said, next series, you're in. And um, here we go. You know, the rest was the rest. I just kind of took it and ran with it. And 106 starts later and X amount of years later, I was I was still on the field. So I think your biggest thing about some a lot of the guys that are pros is they're prepared when their opportunity comes. And um, they helped me do that. Yeah, for sure. It's all about getting that opportunity. So you've talked about a lot of the guys that you were on the offensive line with that helped you out. And I mean, of course you did. You're an OI, so you're going to go to bat for those guys. Let me ask you this. I would ask you what it's like going against a Hall of Fame legend like Bruce Smith every day at practice, but I've talked to enough former Buffalo Bills players. I already know this. That dude barely even practiced, at least physically anyway. You know what I mean? Great athlete, one of the greatest football players in the history of the National Football League. But that guy didn't even really practice. I already know that. So you know, that said, so you know huh? the truth then. That is true. That is very oh, true. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've talked to so many people about that. But let me ask you this. Who were some of the, the tough, great battles that you would have against guys at practice in training camp while you were a Buffalo Bill? Because like I said, I know it wasn't Bruce. The guys that you had the battles with were always the guys like yourself, the the backup guys that were trying to just make sure they still made it or the young players that were trying to, you know, have a name for themselves. Vets like Bruce and 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 Ted Washington and, you know, Phil Hansen would go, but even Phil, it was there was an understanding that you came off the ball for a couple steps and then you chilled out. We used to always kid Mark Pike who you know, everybody says that Steve Tasker belongs in the Hall of Fame and is the greatest special teams player of all time, which Steve does belong in the Hall of Fame, and he is the best or one of the best special teams players of all time. But if you do your research, Mark Pike was probably the best big man special teamer ever in the history of, of the NFL. You know, Marv kept a couple of guys on the team every year just because of their special teams prowess. Obviously, one of those was, was Steve Tasker, but the other one was Mark Pike. Pike always went like a wild man in training camp because he knew this was the only time he was going to get on the field other than special teams. <laughs> as soon as the season started, he was on every special teams as a starter. So he was way too valuable to to get hurt. So he, uh, you know, Marv made sure he was okay. But, you know, a guy like, you know, Mark Pike, uh, Ted was always tough, but you had an understanding there. But Mike Lodish was a guy that, yeah, I remind, you know, Lodish would always go, he was a backup nose guard that would always get after it and go super hard. So, you know, there was a few of them. And, you know, as we got on later, uh, Chris Spielman was a guy that always made sure he got his uh, his true value when it came to reps and practice as well. So those are a couple of them. Do you know, I read a, I remember reading a story quite a while ago about Chris Spielman that to get ready for cold weather games or something, he would sleep in a hotel room naked. <laughs> just to get used to the weather. I don't know if you know that story personally, but you know him. Would would that surprise you if it was true? <laughs> that was always the joke that if it was if it was super cold, it was going to be a cold weather game. He'd drive to work with the air conditioner on. If it was summertime, he'd drive with the heater on. I remember one time. <laughs> I remember one time him and a guy named Tim Tyndale. Uh, Timmy played at Western, which was a was was a school in Ontario. He was from Canada. He won the the Heck Creighton Award, which is the equivalent of the Heisman Trophy in in 
in Canada. But uh, Spilsey and Timmy were good buddies, and they got into this this one-up match walking from uh, the locker room up to the old bubble, which is kind of where the new – where the practice field is now and the facility is now. And uh, by the time they got up to the door of the bubble, both of them were in nothing but their jocks, I was pretty sure. And then they were diving into the snow piles as well. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't shock me. Those are all I, – I don't – I think some of, some of them are probably folklore, but most of them are true. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, all right. So the Super Bowl years are done by the time you become a fixture on the offensive line, but you still played on some very competitive teams. Buffalo made the playoffs four times over five years between 95 to 99. I ain't going to torture you and ask you about the Tennessee game. I don't like to make any former Buffalo Bills that play that game relive it, but I am going to I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you this. You can answer it if you want to. You don't have to, but I will tell you. Uh, I'm going to ask you, do you think Doug Flutie should have started that game? Thomas Smith has come right out and said yes. Eric Moulds has come right out and said yes. Other players have kind of given a more politically correct answer. But, like, are you going to give me an answer? Like, is that a different outcome? I'm going to give you two Because I'll say some stuff that you might. I'm going to give you two answers. I'm going to give you two answers. A two-part answer. Same thing I always say. If you went by the way the quarterbacks were playing, if you went by the way the quarterbacks were playing, Doug Flutie should have started, right? But when we left the field before the kickoff, we were winning the football game. So Fair. say what you will, when when we left the field, Rob Johnson had us in a position to win the game. Our poor kickoff coverage um, is what lost the game for us. So if you look historically at how quarterbacks are playing at the time, yes, Doug had the hot hand and Doug probably should have played. And I think um, – I think if it was up to to certain people, he would have started. But Rob started, and in Rob's defense, when we left the field, we were winning the game. You were, and you're right. Playing devil's advocate, some might say if Doug Flutie was playing, it might not have come down to a kickoff at the end of the game, that the lead might have been substantially more. Well, I don't think anybody understands how good that Tennessee team was and how Very. loud and hard it was to play in Nashville at that time and the players that they had, if you remember, they were actually billing that game as the real Super Bowl. They're like, they were billing that game as the game that actually, whoever wins this game is going to the Super Bowl, and this very well could be the game between the best two teams in the league. I totally buy that. I I remember that, and I think it absolutely proved to be true that the winner of that game would go to the Super Bowl, and that's exactly – what happened? And again, I'm not trying to sit here and shit on Rob Johnson either. And I don't want to get into the dirty politics of, I know some people said he should start and, and some people didn't. We'll leave it there. But anyway, it's always going to be, as long as there's Buffalo Bills talk, that's always going to be one of the more fascinating oh, yeah. I mean, it topics. Down, it's, it's one of the greatest topics in Bill's history. I mean, we'll be 25 years from now. And if there's a book about it, there'll be a chapter can, you know, completely you know, geared around that whole question. Um, it just was, uh, it was just a really weird, it was just a really weird time, but you know, if, like I said, if you went by, if you went by the hot hand, it should have been Doug, but in Rob's defense, we were, we were winning the football game when we left, left the field. Have you, have you ever experienced anything like that at the end of a football game? No, I'm not talking about the stakes. Obviously that answer would be no. I mean, you're playing in the NFL playoffs. It doesn't get any bigger than that, but whether it's little loop or high school or college, were you ever in a game? But there was one or the other 
where something absolutely nuts just happened at the end of the game and you're just sitting there, you know, dumbfounded and shocked, whether it's a good or, or a bad shock, or is that by far the craziest ending you've ever that's, been a part yeah, of? That, well, I, I say that's the craziest ending. We had some crazy endings when I was in college, but they actually were, were helped us. Uh, yeah. For instance, for instance, we played Southern Miss one year. My senior year when we went to the bowl game and beat uh, San Diego State in the Freedom Bowl, um, we we went in at halftime, and when we came out from halftime, the, the, when we went in at halftime, everything was fine. When we came out from halftime, the field had six inches of snow on it. We are basically playing in a blizzard. And um, at the end of the game, it was tied 10 to 10. We had caught a Hail Mary on the two-yard line or three-yard line and had a second or two seconds left. We ran our field goal kicker out. He goes to kick the ball. He slips on the snow, yanks it. We lose. Wait a second. Flag in the end zone. Southern Miss had 12 guys on the field. We kick it again and win. Um, You know, I've been a part of some things like that, but never anything as absolutely gut-wrenching as that football game in Nashville. I mean, just – Does it still, all these years later, Jerry, all these years later, does it still – uh, yeah, obviously you live with it and you move on and you're going on to have a, a great productive life. It's not life or death, but to this day, to this very day, all these years later, 20 plus years later, does it still really eat at you to to lose a game like that in the playoffs against? And like you said, and you were hundred percent right to me, that was the AFC uh, championship game there in the first round. I'll, I'll give it to you in another story form. So as I told you earlier, my, my, 18-year-old, my senior, Owen, is committed to, to the United States Military Academy at West Point. And he's, he's, he's got a bunch of offers to play places, and, one, and he's got three Ivy Leagues, and one of the Ivy League schools is Dartmouth. So Owen tells me, because, yeah, I talked to the Dartmouth coaches today. He, the guy says he knows you. His name is Kevin Daft. He actually was the backup quarterback for Tennessee when they beat you in the uh, Music City you know, Miracle game. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He says he was kind of all talking about it, how uh, how how they beat you and everything. And then and I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, you tell the coach. So you tell Coach Staff that your father said until he admits that it was a forward pass that he could no longer speak to you or recruit you. <laughs> <laughs> so Owen, my son, trip. Owen told him straight up. He says, if you want to recruit me, my dad says you got to admit that it's a forward pass. So uh, evidently, he, evidently he did because they ended up offering him. But no, it still it still burns to this day. Believe me, it really yeah, does. Yeah, sure. So you're still on the Buffalo Bills team early 2000. It's uh, February 10th, 2000, a day that uh, will live in infamy in Bills history because the team cuts Bruce Smith, Andre Reid, and Thurman. At the same time, like, what was that like for you from what you can remember? Now, obviously, these guys are Hall of Fame players, but they're well into the twilight of their careers, especially Andre and Thurman. I mean, Bruce went on to have a couple of really good years with Washington, and it was for different reasons. Bruce was about money. Andre wanted a fresh start. He wanted to leave, and Thurman says that, you know, at that time that the cut kind of blindsided him, and it was for cap reasons, of course, but... What, what what's your recollections of of that time? Again, it's a pretty big moment, a sad day for Bills fans and probably for the organization and, and franchise history. Well, Bruce wanted to go get the sack record, which I totally understand. Um, sure. So he he played until he got that record. But no, it's kind of like uh, 
Don McLean's "The Day the Music Died." I mean, it was it was a really yeah. it was a really strange deal. Obviously, Jim had retired before that, um, you know, on his own terms and everything. Um, there's just no easy way to there's no easy way to do things, and I don't know how the communication went down and how guys found out, but that was truly like when Jim retired, you knew it was was close to the end. But when when those three guys moved on, you knew that it was a completely different era of Bill's football that was getting ready to start. Yeah, I mean, unbeknownst at the time, and again, none of those guys were the players physically that they once were. But after that playoff game against Tennessee, the Bills went 17 years without even making the playoffs. Which again, if you grew up a Bills fan or if you were a player during that era, being in the Super Bowl or contending for a Super Bowl, that was the standard. That was the norm. That was the bar. And for 17 years, this team didn't even make the playoffs. So, you know, and we'll talk about how your career came to an end and stuff in a minute. But before that, spending 17 years, again, you gave a lot to this organization. I'm sure the Buffalo Bills organization still means a lot to you. What's it like to, you know, to have to, to watch this team struggle the way it did? in the 2000s and essentially not essentially literally go 17 years without even making the playoffs once. Well, it was, it was tough because, you know, and you, you mentioned earlier about the, you know, those guys, the Andre and, and Thurman and Bruce and those guys being cut and in the twilights of their, of their careers. But the guys that nobody talks about, like the Ken holes of the world moving on the, the biscuit Cornelius Bennett, Daryl, Daryl Talley, those were heart and soul guys. Those were heart and soul guys of the organization. And, um, you know, losing those guys as well um, hurt quite a bit. But it, it was it was hard to watch the Bills struggle because you knew how much the Bills meant to the city of Buffalo and how much they mean to the, to the people of Buffalo and the surrounding areas. I mean, you know, obviously Buffalo is not big enough to just itself to sustain uh, – you know, an NFL crowd, they get a lot of people from two to three hours away that come in to watch these games. So it's definitely a, you know, a regional, a regional team. And to not have that success after what they had had, you know, it was, it was hard to watch, you know, just for the fans. But obviously, I think it became pretty apparent over time that the only way that was going to change is with some, some different, you know, some different ownership. And I, I love Ralph to death. I mean, Ralph, I owe, I, owe, I owe so much to Ralph Wilson and his family. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing. But, you know, there comes a time when there needs to be some change. And you're seeing some teams right now in the NFL that are having issues, Denver being one of those. It's in a huge battle over ownership. And since Pat Bowen died, who has control and just how much they're struggling. You know, so it's it's obvious that, some things needed to change. The Pagulas have come in and done a wonderful job of not only, you know, bringing back uh, past, you know, trying to get back to that past glory, but bringing back some stability and new thought processes and new marketing schemes. And uh, I wouldn't doubt if in before too long that the Bills do get a new stadium. And, um, you know, so it's just something that, that needed transition. Unfortunately for some, it takes shorter, you know, not, not that long, but, for the bills it did. And I'll tell you what, it was it, after watching them the other night, it was, it's well worth the wait for sure. Yeah. 
I, I want to circle back to Jim for a second here. So, you know, people in the media cover the team for a living and, and fans are, you know, fanatics about the team to certain levels. But at the end of the day, we're watching football games. Again, whether you're covering it, whether you're a fan, we're watching football games. You guys play the game. And in that process, you become close. There's a bond in that locker room that I'm quite confident that only people who do it can understand and can relate to. So you talked about Jim inviting you and you weren't, you weren't even on the active roster. You're just on the practice squad. You're inviting you to Toronto, stuff like that. How tough was it for you to hear what had happened to him and the illness and all the stuff that he's gone through? Now I know that you know what a tough guy he is, but just to see him have to endure all the stuff that he's, uh, you know, had an enduring recent years with, with his health. How difficult is that for someone like yourself that knows him well and, you know, was in that locker room with him and I'm sure shared a lot of, uh, you know, special moments with someone like that. It's tough, isn't it? It was incredibly hard, but it's, it's, it's equally hard watching anybody, you know, battle through sickness, you know, somebody you sure. love and somebody that you respect so much uh, battle through sickness. Um, I, I tell my friends all the time and Jim Kelly is the toughest individual I've ever been around. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, he is the toughest, most, you know, mentally and physically tough person player that I've been around. So um, you knew that if somebody was going to fight this thing and they were going to beat it, it was going to be Jim. And then you also knew that once he did beat it, the good he was going to do with his story, um, and, and how he's going to spread his story and support others and raise money and awareness. And, you know, he's just an amazing guy. And I'm, I'm, you know, you don't wish illness on anybody. And I'm more, you know, we're so happy, especially my family, that he was able to, to battle through it and get better. But, you know, it's just, it's just hard to see guys, you, you know, you care about go through things like that. Yeah. So, all right, your last year in the league. So you've had a really good career. You break your leg, I, I believe it was in the preseason 2001, correct? It was the preseason where you broke your leg? Yes, it was. Yeah, and then later, so you come back, but then you hurt your knee uh, against Atlanta. And that would go on to be your last game. How hard is it when you have to, at some point, any athlete at any level, you get to where you're going to get to and you have to physically come to grips uh, you know, of your own mortality as a professional athlete. When that finish comes with were you at peace with your career being done or you know was it hard for you to uh to accept for a while because of physical injuries being the reason why your career ultimately had to come to an end your playing well, career so I, I break my leg and in the preseason I broke uh, I had a tibial plateau fracture um so they fix it and with Rusty Jones's help working out in the swimming pool and everything else I was able to come back and I guess 10 weeks and um, which is kind of something that's not really heard of too much. I mean, obviously I don't think anybody would have faulted me if I just waved the white flag and didn't play the whole year. Um, but that's not what I did. And that's not what I do. I mean, everybody has a niche. Everybody has something they do. Obviously mine was playing multiple positions, but it was also being durable. It was being reliable. And if I had the opportunity and I was felt healthy enough to play, I was going to play. So I came back in 10 weeks, which was probably too soon, but I did come back. And the first game back was against New England and um, <clears throat> was backside, ran the cut uh, defensive tackle and actually landed on my knee and blew my bursa up. 
and had aggravated that knee to the point where I wouldn't practice Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, would go through Friday lightly, would walk through Saturday, would play Sunday, and then do the whole process over again. And just with the fact of not being able to to lift and work out on that leg. And then Atlanta, that last game, <clears throat> hit that knee again, and it just – my quad and everything just shut down, and I just was like, "I'm that's enough. I'm not – I can't do this anymore this year. So I went into the offseason – and I think the biggest thing and the one thing I'm I'm grateful for with the Bills, and I don't know if it's was just dumb luck or what, but Greg Williams was our head coach and Tom Donahoe was the general manager. And they had they had recently released uh John Holosek and Henry Jones, two of the most Henry probably one of the most beloved Bills of all time. John was right up there as well. John was a Buffalo guy, inside linebacker, tough guy. Henry was very charismatic, played there a long time, was really, really good person. And they had taken so much um, grief from the fan base and the media over these these un, how, the way they unceremoniously cut those guys. When it came to me and they kind of started, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to work through my own, you know, professional mortality here. Am I going to play? Am I not going to play? They gave me space, and they gave me time to work through it. They took me on the road in the preseason. They allowed me to go to training camp, and I was able to work through that process in my mind before I got to the moment where I decided I needed to to retire because I couldn't play at the level that I wanted to play at. And um, so that is one thing I was always grateful for and happy for, that the organization allowed me to kind of work through it. But, you know, my wife was back here having complications with uh, with our second son, and it just was one of those deals where it hits you and you go, okay, I'm ready. And, uh, you know, things, uh, I went ahead and made the decision and, and, uh, retired. Not to make you sound old, but playing in the eighties and the nineties and decades before that's a lot different than playing in the NFL today. Not even talking about the all of course money and stuff like that and TV and all the things that go on today. But I'm, I'm also talking about social media. We talked about Twitter a couple times here and there throughout this interview. Remember Jerry Sullivan, who was longtime columnist for the Buffalo News? I uh, he, yeah. 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 Well, he had a tweet a couple of days ago that I, I thought was pretty interesting. And he, this was his tweet. He said, God, I wish Twitter had been around when the Bills were going to the Super Bowl in the 90s. Imagine the cell phones and bars when Kelly and the boys were out on the town. I mean, we kind of talked about how the, you know, you guys were rock stars d- during that time. Janine Talley, Daryl's, uh, wife says she'd be divorced <laughs> but anyway it's it's like you know things are so different now and this does kind of relate to you because you have kids and yeah, you're just talking about your son who's going to be playing college football back when you played you had a little more freedom in your personal life whereas now everything's so much more intrusive if you do literally anything somebody's going to have their cell phone out there recording it you know what i mean so kind of kind of to, to, to piggyback on what jerry's saying are you kind of relieved that when you guys did play and went out and had your personal lives that you didn't have social media and the stuff that goes on now? And, you know, now as a father with a kid who's coming up in this era, is that something that you've had discussions with him or will certainly warn him about? Yeah, we call them Twitter snitches. The people yeah. like to snitch on Twitter. Um, yeah, thank goodness they didn't have that when we were around. That's, you know, I I, I don't know what would would have uh would have come of it but 
I will say this is the kids are so they seem to be so lax on social media and they're so okay with it that sometimes my son will put something up that is basically is it's harmless. But I look at it as right away as what what are you doing? Why are you saying that? Why 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 are you yeah. telling people which you, you know, like I get real defensive because I come from a time period where, you know, you kept your mouth shut and you did your deal and nobody knew anything. Now kids want to know how, well, how'd you find out? Well, you basically told on yourself and you don't even know what you did, but you told on yourself by what you posted and everything else. So no, that's a, that was a great point. I, and I, unlike Jerry Sullivan, I'm glad they did not have that technology back then because it had been ugly. <laughs> For sure. And, and, you know, I have a, a son who's a high school senior just finished up. He's going to play college football. He's not going to a bigger school. Like he's got D2 schools looking at him and stuff. And I don't even let him. Nothing goes on his Twitter without me seeing it first, just because, you know, it's kind of like in a way for these kids and, and for adults too, it's in a way, it's almost like your resume, your portfolio, what, what right. you put out there, especially when you're somebody, like I said, if you're playing a sport or you're in sports media or anything like that. But anyway, before we get to the fun fact finale, just kind of catch fans up a little bit with what you've been up to. Some of the things you've done since your playing days end, like, obviously, like you talked about, you're still now living in Tulsa. You've, uh, gotten the opportunity to watch two of your sons play football. Like what have you been up to in the years since uh, your career ended? Well, first of all, before I move any further, congratulations on your son, uh, getting the opportunity to play division, you know, division two, whether it's one, two, three, NAIA, all college football special. And what's important sure. about it is they're playing a great game. So um, congrats on to, to him and would love to hear where he's getting a chance to go and where, you know, follow his career. But um, what I've, what I've done back in Tulsa, I came back here and, and um, I've done some coaching. I've been in some various sales positions. Um, I did a couple of stints on radio for a while. I was a radio show host and had my own show, um, which is fun. I could, I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> which is fun. But what people don't understand about radio is, is the radio show is as good as the energy you bring to it. So when you got to bring your own energy every day uh, for the show to be good, over time, it can be a little bit tiring. And uh, obviously down here in Tulsa, you've got to talk about uh, the Oklahoma Sooners and the Oklahoma State Cowboys quite a bit, and that can get old as well. So, But, uh, no, I did a little bit of radio and everything and bounced around. But right now I'm back in um, – I've, I've done quite a bit of time in medical sales. Uh, I was in uh, – I sold uh, recon, which is joint replacements, and I did uh, trauma, which is plates and screws, and did that for about five years. Got out for a couple, but I'm back in doing sports medicine with Smith and Nephew. Uh, they're the company I work for, and we do, you know, rotator cuff repairs, ACLs, all that stuff, everything from implants to to endoscopy, which is which is all the towers and video and all that stuff for all the arthroscopic surgery. So that's what I'm I'm currently in the process of doing, and it allows me to free up my weekends and go see my my sons uh, play ball. So we're we're happy about that. Being a father, and you know what? I got another question for you, just because you kind of touched on something. So you play in the NFL. You've played football at the highest level that you could possibly ever play football at. As a dad, sometimes is it? Do you, have you ever caught yourself maybe having to pull back a little bit? Because, again, you've played football at such a, a high level, and you know a minuscule amount of people ever get that opportunity. And as a father, you're watching your kids play, and obviously – your son's very good playing college football, again, committed to to West Point. But 
maybe they got more pressure on, maybe he has more pressure on him because he's Jerry Ostrowski's kid and his dad played in the NFL for a long time. Is, is it kind of a, like a balance? You know, you have to make sure you kind of have to pull back and understand, hey, you're your own person. You know, you're not me. Right. And I think the first thing that I, that I always did, and it kind of freaked my kids out a little bit, um, both of my boys, like I said, my older boy plays at Drake, which is in Des Moines, Iowa. It's a 1AA school. Uh, he'll be a senior next year. And then Owen, of course, is going to do his thing. But I, I, I told both of my boys from the beginning, just because I played the game of football, you don't have to play. I am not going to be disappointed in you because you did not play football. It is a difficult game. It's a game of extreme maturity. You've got to be mature to be able to handle it. And it's not for everybody. And I don't want, I never wanted my boys to be miserable trying to live up to who their father was. I mean, they'll be the first to tell you. I mean, everybody always gets on. I'm like, you know where your dad, you know, in college I was 55. And this, this uh, last year I, or actually it was two years ago now, I had my jersey retired at the University of Tulsa. And I wore 60 in Buffalo. And neither of my kids wore 55 or 60. Everybody said, well, how did you wear your dad's name? I'm like, look, man, they, they're making their own path. They're doing their own thing. And um, I always felt that was important to make sure they knew that. I support them in anything they do. But by all means, if they didn't play football, I would be perfectly fine with that. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's wrap up with the fun fact finale. I do this with all my guests. I'm just going to ask you a handful of kind of random questions, fun questions, not a lot of deep thought required, kind of like rapid fire, whatever the first thing that pops off in that brilliant mind of yours, that'll be your answer. You good to go? Yeah, man. All right. Your favorite all-time athlete, any sport? Reggie White. Okay. Favorite city that you've ever had an opportunity to visit? San Diego, California. Okay. What's your favorite, like, go-to snack? It's late at night, you can't sleep, you're just lounging around, you want to snack away on something. What do you got? Ice cream. Okay. What kind of flavor? I was going to have what flavor? I I like all kinds. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. <laughs> what movie have you probably rewatched more than any other movie? Um, that would probably be Pulp Fiction. Okay. What's your favorite TV show? It could be something past or present. Favorite TV show of all time is Sopranos. Uh, present okay. present show would be uh, Yellowstone. Okay. What would you consider your worst habit? Like, call yourself off or something. What's a bad habit that you have? Bite my nails. <laughs> I hear that a lot. That, that's a pretty popular one. All right. Uh, name a TV game show that you feel like if you were on it, you could potentially do very well on. It could be a current game show. It could be an older game show, but something where if Jerry Ostrowski was on it, he'd have a really good chance to win. I'd crush Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> All right. Let's say instead of being 1,500, 2,000, however goddamn many miles we are apart right now, let's say we were at in a non-COVID world. We're at a bar, right? And we're having a a drink, a bite to eat, and there's karaoke going on. And I've convinced you to get up there and sing something. What's a song that you're going to sing that the crowd's really going to get into? Whether it's rocking out to it or singing a slow song, like what's something that you think you could get up there and do really well at? Oh, man. Probably, I'd probably, uh, probably Garth Brooks, Friends in Low Places. Okay. Uh, two more here. Give us a, a fun fact that maybe not a lot of people know about you. Something that, yeah, not a lot of people know this fun fact about you. Um, 
for uh, for quite a while, I was a single digit handicap in golf. Really? Do you still play a lot now? Uh, not as much as I used to, but there was a stretch there where I played quite a bit. Okay. Last question. Same one I always ask. I end it with every interview. So you could have three celebrity or historical figures from any era, dead or alive, any time ever, at your house tonight for some good eats, maybe a drink or two, just to shoot the shit, have some laughs, good conversation, whatever. Three people, any time, who would you have? Well, two of them would be, one would be James Gandolfini, who played Tony Soprano in The Sopranos. Um, The other would be Reggie White, obviously. Reggie is my all-time favorite athlete, all-time favorite Eagle all-time favorite football player, and actually had a chance to play against him um, in when he was in Green Bay. And the third one would probably be, they don't have to be famous, right? Not to give me anybody. Probably my dad's father. I never met him. Never knew him. I'd probably, he would probably be there as well. Really cool. Really cool. All right, everyone, give Jerry a follow on Twitter. Jerry is on Twitter, at Ostrowski underscore Big O. Dude, this was a lot of fun, man. I'm so happy that I did find you. I hunted you down and got you on this podcast. Thank you so much for doing it. This was a lot of fun. No, I appreciate you. If you ever want to do it again, please let me know. And um, I enjoy I enjoy doing this type of stuff. I know John does it does a lot as well. And uh, it's fun to be able to reconnect and, and talk about the past and actually give back to the fans so that the ones that maybe don't know about some of the stuff that we – we had going on back in the the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Maybe they can learn a little bit. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for this episode. Very big thank you one more time, Jerry Ostrowski. That was a lot of fun, man. I really like Jerry a lot. One of my favorite interviews that I've done on this podcast. Good stuff. So thank you again very much, Jerry. Coming up next Tuesday, we'll be talking, of course, Buffalo Bills, Pittsburgh Steelers, Sunday Night Football. We'll put a spin on that game. Look forward to some other stuff as well. Guys, girls, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, please go ahead and do that right now. Rating review really helps me continue to grow this show. Of course, you can subscribe on all the major podcasting platforms out there. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, all of them. Uh, Also, follow me on Twitter, at PamaranTweets. I'm always on Twitter, and I mean always on Twitter. Podcasting updates, upcoming guests, promos, polls, trivia, just going back and forth with Bills and sports fans. It's my place to be. So again, at Pamaran on Twitter. I'm sorry, at PamaranTweets on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. I say it all the time. I end this podcast the same way every single time because it's very important. I want to thank you for listening. I know how many good podcasts there are, just Buffalo Bills and Buffalo stuff related alone. How many there are out there? The competition is wicked. You just use a Boston phrase there. But it's it's big competition. And when you're locked into this show, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes, however long, doesn't go unnoticed. It really is appreciated by me. I'm very humble. So thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Stay safe. Do the right thing. Wear a mask. Be careful. And I'll talk to you again next Tuesday.